You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning again. Um, I should mention, if, if you're a regular attender here, that you know there's different ways that you can give to the, uh, to the vision and the mission of the church. If you're new here, we're just glad that you're with us. I uh, feel no obligation uh, to give, but if you're a regular attender, this is, you know the drill. Okay. So, uh, this morning, we are beginning a new series, a new series for the season of Lent, and the series is on the, the seven sayings. Now, what are the seven sayings? Well, these are the seven things that Jesus says from the cross. Now, this is a different approach to Lent, what we're doing uh, in our church this year. Typically, during the season of Lent, um, typically churches will walk through the story of, um, of Jesus' uh, final, final week, and usually the week before uh, Easter, it's, it's Palm Sunday, so you remember Jesus' triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem, um, and the final week culminates with uh, Good Friday and the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday. But what we're going to do this year is something a little bit different. Uh, we are going to linger at the foot of the cross. We're going to linger at the foot of the cross and listen to Jesus during the entire Lenten season. We're going to listen to what Jesus says while he's on the cross, and we're going to meditate on his words. So, in many ways, this series is like an extended Good Friday reflection, which is not a bad thing. Sometimes, as evangelicals, we like to rush to the empty tomb and bypass the cross. This year, we're invited to slow down, to tarry at the foot of the cross, to linger, to listen, and to embrace the mystery of Jesus' crucifixion. So we're going to listen to the first words from the cross. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Luke. It's uh, just a little bit ways into your New Testament. Luke chapter 23 And we're going to begin in verse 26. Is that what I have on there, Thomas? (laughs) Verse 26? Doesn't matter. Um, In honor of God's word, let's stand together as I read this. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross, to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Jesus, we stand at the foot of the cross and look up. We pray that you would speak into our hearts. Give us ears to hear from you and eyes to see and the courage to respond to whatever you say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, we've talked about this before, but the cross is a very strange symbol. It's a symbol that you see everywhere. Have you ever been to an art gallery? I have. It may come as a surprise, but I have. I only go to art galleries when they are free. And so I went to a bunch in England because they're all free. Uh, Washington, D.C., they were free. And once, even in Vancouver, they were free. It was free, so I went once. Um, now, when I was looking at art, I don't understand a whole lot of art, but I did notice this. I noticed that most Western art that dated prior to 1800 had a singular theme, and it shows up again and again in art. And that is the theme of the cross, in particular, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We have a couple pictures of those. So this is older art. It has this theme. <laughs> Just one, <laughs> I was with my brother once, and we went into the modern art section, which is very different. And, and we went into this <laughs> one room, and I said to my brother, it's like, ah, it's under renovation because there's bricks and, and scaffolding. And it's like, oh, I guess it's... But apparently that was the art. And I... Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> But prior to 1800, you do have this theme, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the cross has been a central image throughout most of Western history. I, I would go so far as to say that the cross is the most recognizable symbol in all of human history. We see it everywhere. We see it on ambulances and hospitals, on gravestones, as tattoos, as necklaces, as earrings. Of course, you see it in churches and on top of churches throughout the world. Again, I'm hard-pressed to find a more recognizable symbol in the world. But, oh man, is it a strange symbol, the cross. If, if you time-traveled back to the first century and spoke to someone in the Greco-Roman world, and while you're speaking to somebody, you're wearing something like this. And you put the, yeah, you know, you have, you know, these things on. And, or you have, you know, earrings that are cross-shaped. And, and, and you're talking to somebody, and let's say you can speak Latin, because that's what you'd have to speak, or Greek. Um, and you're speaking, and they're like, um, what's that on your ears? And you're like, oh, do you like them? And they're like, well, what are they? Well, they're crosses. Crosses, like as in... 
Well, you know, um, Jesus died on a cross, and so this is just remembering. You're like, you're wearing a cross? You have no idea. That would make no sense to someone living in the first century. No sense whatsoever. I mean, to get an idea of how people would have felt if they saw you with a, with a cross necklace or cross earrings, uh, listen to what uh, Roman philosopher Cicero says. He says, wretched is the loss of one's good name in public courts. He goes, that's a bad thing. Wretched, too, a monetary fine exacted from one's property. Okay, that's also a bad thing. Wretched is exile, being kicked out of your city. That's bad, too. But the executioner, the veiling of heads, and the very word cross... Let them all be far removed, not only from the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. The mere mention of them is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Even the mention of the word cross is not something that you would ever do in any kind of conversation. To Cicero... Even the mention of the word cross was shameful, <laughs> let, let alone wearing them with diamonds in your ears. Now, the key word I want you to focus in on here is the word shameful. To the ancient world, shame mattered a lot. To experience shame would destroy your reputation, would affect your Roman citizenship, your free status. It would impact not only your life, but your household's life. And so in the ancient world, shame was something to be avoided at all costs. And here's the point so far. There is no greater shame than to be crucified, nailed, to a Roman cross. To die via crucifixion was so bad that you didn't even talk about it. Crucifixion was literally excruciating. Excruciating. The word means from the cross. Excruciating. That's what the word means. But as bad as that was, it was the shame that was the problem. To die on a cross was utterly and completely shameful. And so to see the cross as something upbeat or even as a sacred symbol was the opposite to what it meant in the first century. In the ancient world, the cross symbolized shame, degradation, worthlessness, despair, torture, and loss. Listen to what the Roman uh, historian Tacitus says. He, he, well, he observes that corpses were cut down from the cross and the corpses were, were regularly thrown into ditches to be pecked at by birds and eaten by dogs. Those who were crucified were seen as garbage. Okay, we have to get our heads around this. And this explains, you know, who was most likely to be crucified. In the ancient world, who was most likely to be crucified would be a slave. And if this were, if this were indicative of, of Roman society, um, about one-third of you would be slaves. And slaves in the Roman Empire were viewed as non-human beings. They weren't human. They were, they were things. They were, they were um, 
I think Aristotle called them living tools to carry out the work of the rich. And so slaves could be punished in ways that ordinary citizens could not be. And the way that slaves were typically punished was through crucifixion. Again, Cicero says crucifixion was the most miserable and most painful punishment appropriate to slaves alone. In fact, one of the worst things that could happen is that if you were mistaken, if you're a Roman citizen and you were mistaken for being a slave and you were crucified. Again, our man Cicero says, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen, to scourge him as a, is a wickedness, to put him to death is almost like killing a parent. What shall I say of crucifying him? Such an action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any bad name, bad enough for it. You can't even express how bad that would be if you were a normal person and you were mistaken for a slave and you were crucified. I even read in 61 AD there was a slave who killed a Roman senator and as a result, the entire household of slaves, all 400 of them were crucified as a punishment. And what crucifixion communicated is that the people who were being killed this way were worthless. They were less than human. And to be crucified was to render a human being into a non-human. Now, I'm not exaggerating at all, but to be crucified, to be crucified in the Greco-Roman world was, was something similar to the idea of squishing a bug. Glenn Scrivener writes, he says, to see someone crucified was to watch their unpersoning and to hear the message, do not go the way of this wretch. Now, as horrible as crucifixion was, it was a popular event to watch. Because typically when a person was crucified, they were crucified in public places. And typically on major roads and intersections. And so if you went out here and in the intersection of, of Spurway and Mariner on the corner or over by Mundy Park, you would have some crosses sticking out of the ground and people dying on these crosses. And to, the, the goal was to, give maximize, uh, to, to maximize the exposure to maximize the what? The shame. Exactly. We know that during gladiator games, um, halftime shows in the gladiator games, the halftime show was crucifixion. And so crucifixion is, was one of the most brutal ways to execute someone on the lowest rung of the ladder in society. Crucifixion was the means to produce the greatest shame of a person. It made a human being less than human. It made them something like a bug to be squished to get rid of. And it's crucifixion that was carried out on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and he holds all things together. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so one of the most truly remarkable proclamations that has been made for the last 2,000 years is this, that the degraded, shamed, condemned, crucified person on the cross was none other than the Son of God. I like what uh, Fleming Rutledge, uh, she's a, um, a preacher, and she says this. Do we have that quote? Yeah, she says, here's one of the most powerful arguments for the truth of the Christian faith. The human religious imagination could not have arrived at a notion so utterly foreign to a generally accepted spiritual ideas of a crucified Messiah. What she's saying is like, nobody would have thought of this. One of the, one of the most um, compelling arguments for Christianity is that nobody would ever have come up with the idea of a crucified Messiah. Given what crucifixion meant. So let's lean in here. Let's stand at the foot of the cross and listen. Listen as Jesus Christ, the author of life, the author of love, was being dehumanized and shamed being stripped naked and nailed to the wooden beams of a cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, how do we receive this? Well, we... we, (laughs) It's, it's an amazing passage. And what do we see at this passage? Well, we see, we see Jesus doing something amazing while being nailed to a Roman cross. Jesus, at the, at the crucial moment, notice the word crucial, again, comes from the word cross. At the crucial moment, Jesus intercedes for those carrying out this horrible act. Jesus prays. Jesus prays for those who are carrying out the worst imaginable act possible, the crucifixion of God. The crucifixion of the author of love. Now, we got to pause here for a second. What does this say about who God is? What does this say about the character of God? As Jesus is being crucified, as he subjects himself to the lowest, most despicable, shameful death known to humanity, the very unpersoning of himself, he intercedes for those carrying out this atrocity. What does this say about God? Now let me ask you this question. This is a really important question. How do you see God? When you think of God, how, how, what do you think of? Do you think of some deity on some cloud far away with his arms closed? 
cross and tapping his foot, waiting for you to make a move? How, how do you see God? Is God oblivious to suffering? Is God uncaring? This is crucial for us. Crucial, crucial. You want to know what God is like. You want to know the character of God, the one who created the universe. You want to know what this God is like? Look at the cross. The cross reveals the heart of God. When the most despicable thing, shameful thing, humanly conceivable, he subjects himself to this. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus, he intercedes. He intercedes for us. Why? Because he knows that more than anything else, what you and I need is forgiveness. Do you know the old hymn, Were You There? You know that one? Were you there when they crucified my Lord, right? It's a, it's a good question. <laughs> Were you there? Now, some of you might be thinking, I wasn't there. That was a long time ago. Were you there when, you cru- when they crucified my Lord? I wasn't there. And you know what? If I was there, I would have done something different. I would have stepped up. I would have helped Jesus. But what does the book of Proverbs teach us? The book of Proverbs teaches us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And to know our hearts, what we would have done or what we wouldn't have done, requires us to put ourselves before a holy God. And when we place ourselves, when we place our hearts before a holy God, we see things that were hidden. We see disturbing things about our hearts. And what if there are things inside of our hearts that we prefer not to see? Typically, when we talk about bad people, we think of bad people, we think of you think of people who are really bad, right? And, and you say, well, you know, bad people. I know what bad people. They're, they're guys like, you know, Hitler or Stalin or, or Pol Pot. And, I, you know, I could totally see those guys nailing Jesus to the cross. And, you know, they, they, they need forgiveness. Because, you know, they've done some really, really bad things. But me? Yeah, I I'm a good guy. I, I help out. I volunteer. I do a lot of good things. <laughs> yeah, I mess up a bit. But what I need is not so much forgiveness. I just need a little understanding. That's all I need. I, and you know what? God, he understands my weakness, and I'm sure he'll wink at my indiscretions. I'm not like a really bad person. I always remember Alexander Solzhenitsyn when he was released from a Soviet gulag prison. And he spoke and he reflected on his experience in Stalin's gulag. And he says this, he says, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, 
nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And so we come back to the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Where would we have taken our stand? With the soldiers? With the jeering crowds? With the thieves on the other crosses? Is there a difference between them and us? Can I honestly look at this passage and say, man, if I was there, I would have done differently. Take a moment to look at your life. Think about the things that you've done that may, the things may be wrong, but they seem small, insignificant. Think about that word of encouragement that you withheld. Think about that kindness that you never gave. Think about that visit that you should have made, but you didn't. Think about that clever comment in that, in that discussion that it seemed clever at the time, but in hindsight, it was actually quite cruel. Think about the angry answer that you gave to your kids. The, the resentment that you feel at being slighted, passed over. Think about that lie that you thought would do no harm. See, this list, it goes on and on and on and accumulates. And those are just the things that we can remember. Think of the thousands of things that we did that we shouldn't have done, that we didn't do, that we ought to have done, that we don't even remember. One guy puts it this way. He says, but now it's come to this. It has come to the cross. All the trespasses of all the people over all time have gravitated to this spot, to the killing grounds of Calvary. When I look at my heart, and I shared this before, but uh, the older I get, oh man, the more I see how stubborn sin is in my heart and how deep it goes. When I became a Christian, I thought, ah, I guess I sin a little bit. And the older I get, it's like, man, it's got such a hold of me. It goes deep. So I can't help but come to the conclusion. When I ask the question, were you there when they crucified your Lord? I have to say, yes, I was there. See, the mysteries of the cross, they cut to the heart. They tell us, one, something terribly is wrong with this world. And if you look around at the world, you cannot help but conclude that there's something wrong, right? I've shared this before, but I love G.K. Chesterton, early 20th century guy, um, social commentator. There was a newspaper article where everybody's supposed to mail in their answers to this one question. And the question is, what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton writes a letter to the editor. And on the sheet of paper, it's just two words, I am. That's what's wrong with the world. Something's wrong with this world and something must be done to set things right. And our hearts long for things to be made right. Our hearts long for wars to come to an end. Our hearts long for evil not to have the final word, don't they? 
But here's the problem. Whatever needs to be done, whatever needs to be done to fix this problem, we can't do it. Why? Because we're part of the problem. How can you and I make up through our actions one disastrous death of a child? How can we even make that up, let alone the killing of Auschwitz or the killing fields of Cambodia? How can we make up for this when we're the ones who have done it? When we're the problem. And so someone's going to have to do this, but not just anybody. What must be done must be carried out by one who is not responsible, who is perfectly free, who is perfectly just, who is perfectly good, who can embody and represent everyone. It must be done by the incarnate author of life himself, Jesus Christ. And so the mystery being revealed at the foot of the cross this morning is this, that God the Father and God the Son have colluded in a thing most amazing. The Son, Jesus Christ, takes the depth of the, get this, he takes the depth of the shame the shame, you cannot go deeper with the shame. He takes the full scope of the guilt that belongs to us and dies the death that we should have died in our place. But by submitting to the unjust judgment of the world, the world is judged. All of us have sinned and fall short. And the reality is, is we were all there when they crucified our Lord. Oh, but then hear the words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So here's our challenge and our invitation this morning. Our challenge is to allow the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to speak into your hearts these truths this morning. And our response, our response to what, to what we hear, it's an old-fashioned word. <laughs> it's an old-fashioned word that, you know, is often misunderstood. And the old-fashioned word is repent. We are called to repent. Now, what does that mean? Repent simply means stop going in this way and start walking with the author of life. That's what it means. It means turn around, change your mind, align yourself with the author of life. Repentance means letting go of being boss of your life, of being CEO of your life. It's allowing the severe grace of God to speak into your heart. Yes, Lord, I was there. I give my life to you and I receive this forgiveness. And the invitation for you and I the invitation for you and me this morning is to receive the forgiveness and the new life that Jesus is offering us. Now, there's some of you here this morning, you're wanting a do-over in life. You've been going along a path and it hasn't led to anything good. Don't you long for a better future? Do you long for a better future? 
Well, Jesus says to you this morning, I will give you that better future. That, 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 that deep thing that you're longing for, is there more to life than this? There's got to be more. Jesus is offering it to you this morning. This past Wednesday was a busy day, right? It was Valentine's Day. That happened to also be Ash Wednesday. It was actually one more for me. It was one other day. Another day that I mark. It actually marked my 30 years since I became a Christian on Wednesday. Yeah. And I remember, I remember that day so well in a hotel room in Shanghai, lying in bed, looking at the way my life was heading, and I'm like, there's got to be more to life than this. And reading about the cross and reading what Jesus is offering me, and I just thought, man, if I keep going the way I'm going, I'm toast. I'm de- Actually, I'm more than toast. I'm dead. I'm so dead. I was considering working for an Italian mafiosa in Beijing. I was offered a job. I'd be at the bottom of the Yellow River right now if I took that job. So Jesus rescued me and his offer to you this morning is to rescue you. And some of you, yeah, you may have been walking with Jesus for a long time, but you've fallen into habits that are killing you. And it's killing your family, it's killing your relationships. And Jesus this morning saying, hey, you can turn again. Turn again, because I'm interceding for you. I died the death that you should have died. And my, my posture to you is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What if Jesus has so much to give to you today? And I think about it at the foot of the cross. You think of all the people that were there. There were soldiers. There were thieves on both sides. And, you know, what did the soldiers go home with that day? They went home with a little bit of Jesus' clothing, right? They gambled for his clothing. That's all they went home with, nothing else. What are you going to go home with today? Bit of coffee? Some snacks? Good conversation in the foyer. What if Jesus has so much more for you today? Let's pray. Jesus, we've been lingering at the foot of the cross. And we have seen mysteries revealed. And we've heard. We've heard what our sin, what our transgressions have done. We've seen it. Were we there when we crucified the Lord? Yes, we were there. And our hearts have been so far away from you. And yet you look at us and you call us into forgiveness, into new life, into a new future. And so we come before you recognizing that in you there is complete forgiveness. There's, there's second, third, hundred chances at life. And that though the trajectory of our lives does not need to keep going the way it's going. But you can, the, your desire is to lead us into life. And so this morning we turn to you. 
the author of life, the author of love. And Lord, may we know in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that you have set us free. We ask this not in our own strength because we bring nothing to the table. Oh, Jesus, we ask this in your great name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.